Okay, well, so in the coming weeks, uh, we are going to talk about the things that are necessary for confirmation. Um, well, not really necessary. Technically, the prayer book sets a pretty low bar for confirmation. Uh, confirmation really only requires you to know the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. Um, but I think with adults, it's good to uh, kind of know what you're getting yourself into before you <laughs> make the plunge. Uh, and so learn a little bit about um, what Anglicanism is, why we do some of the things that we do, and what we believe. I've been told by a friend of mine that um, that Anglicanism is an ecclesiology, meaning it's a, it's a structure of a church that's always been looking for a theology. And I think we'll see that tonight a little bit because we'll be discussing uh, kind of how we got where we are as Anglicans um, and the history of, of the Church of England. Next week, we will talk about what an Anglican ecclesiology means, which means we're going to focus primarily on apostolic succession um, and the threefold ministry of deacon, priest, and bishop. Then following week, we'll talk about how we worship as Anglicans. Um, basically, at the center of, of our life together is are the sacraments, seven sacraments, and the Mass in particular. The fourth week, we'll discuss um, the church and its calendar, uh, because there are a lot of uh, interesting features of the Christian calendar. Um, for example, today you may have noticed was the it's the Wednesday in the octave of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is quite a uh, quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, so we'll talk a little bit about about what that means, what the calendar means for us. We'll talk about Anglican theology, which is a very vast subject, precisely because Anglicans have never really had a strictly defined theology. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about the method of Anglican theology, how Anglicans do theology, which tends to be reduced to the idea of scripture, tradition, and reason all kind of working together um, in order to get us where we're going. And then finally, we'll talk about what it means uh, to, to have an Anglican spirituality. Um, what does it mean to live the Christian life within the Anglican tradition? What does that look like? And then our last week together, uh, we'll have a guided Eucharist. So that will pretty much just be a regular Mass. In fact, it's a feast day of some sort. I forgot what exactly that feast day is, but it is it is a feast day, so that's cool too. Um, but I, I, it just walks through each part of the Mass, and this is why we do what we do. This is why we wear what we wear and all that stuff, so that way uh, you are, um, you're equipped to know what's going on. I once had a, uh, in Virginia at our parish, we had a very small parish, maybe 25 people, but we had a, a couple that started worshiping with us, and um, and he had been raised Catholic, and she had been raised evangelical, non-denominational. And so she would bring a notepad to Mass every Sunday, and she would write down all the questions. Why do you wear a poncho during the service? You know, things like that. And I really like that, so um, maybe we should have done a guided Eucharist. And then finally, uh, on the syllabus, there is a list of books. One of them is the Mark Haverland, Archbishop Haverland's book, Archbishop Haverland, for those of you who weren't here when I explained it, is the Archbishop of the Anglican Catholic Church, which is a church that we as the Anglican province of America are in full communion with. Um, they're part of the Joint Synod, um, and he's a very nice man. I got to meet him in Atlanta a few weeks ago. Um, but the other books are just books that are helpful if you're ever interested in exploring more about Anglican history or theology. Uh, Mark Chapman's book, Anglican Theology, is really good. Uh, Maskell is a, a tougher read, but he is a brilliant thinker. Um, Vernon Staley is also uh, a, maybe more of a practical guide to what uh, what Anglicanism is. 
Um, and then uh, L.S. Thornton does some, uh, he does some, I guess, biblical theology work. Um, he spends a lot of time talking about the Apostle Paul. And then Martin Thornton, who's not related to L.S. Thornton, uh, is uh, a wonderful writer on English spirituality. Um, so kind of all the books that we use for each week are right there um, in the syllabus. So, If someone asks you, you know, you're, you're out and about or you're hanging out with friends and you tell them, I've been going to an Anglican church, um, what do people tend to say when it comes to the history of Anglicanism? Henry VIII, because he wanted to do what? He wanted to get a divorce. Yeah. Oh, you go to that church? The third, the second or third divorce. Right. Actually, uh, wasn't that his first? It was his first. Catherine Catherine of Aragon was his first, I think. No, the one, uh, the annulment of his first wife, who he then sent to a nunnery. No, that was Anna Cleves. That was down the road. No, no, no. It was um, um, Catherine of Aragon was the first wife. Yeah, I think it was the first. That's right. There's that. Uh, there's that mnemonic device to remember all the wives. I forgot what it was, though. I I spent more of my time thinking about the first one because after that, it really goes down the hill. But you know. So yeah, so you hear that, right? Oh, you go to the church that was founded because Henry VIII, you know, couldn't keep it in his pants and wanted a divorce and all that. And so yeah, you have to kind of roll your eyes and say, oh, well, not quite, but okay. Not that Henry VIII was a particularly noble man, you know, regardless, but, um, but anyways. So, um, so if, we, if we slice Anglican history roughly, and I mean, we could certainly do this many different ways, but the sort of main five periods of Anglican history are the pre-Roman uh, period, which is a bit of a misnomer, but, um, but that's kind of the, the way it's described often. There's the period where there really was no difference between Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism, uh, then there was a Reformation, uh, or as one of the priests I worked with in Virginia called it, that great temper tantrum on the continent. Is what I would always explain. Um, and then we get into a period in the 1800s uh, of, of a reform of a reform, um, so a sort of counter-reformation to the original project of Anglicanism that was embodied by a group of men called the Oxford Movement and then was picked up later by uh, by a group called the Ritualists and then the Anglo-Catholic Congress movement. Um, and also we have to grapple with Anglicanism in America because uh, obviously we are not British. Um, so uh, anyways, let's start with the pre-Roman period. And I should stop and say too, if you have any questions, stop me and, and we can talk through them. Um, I definitely want to, uh, want to encourage questions. So the pre-Roman period, um, we don't know how Christianity arrived in England. There are stories about how it arrived. The popular myth was that Joseph of Arimathea, who was the man who buried Jesus, somehow brought it to England himself. Um, but that is, that is a sort of myth that was popularized in England as a kind of way of fomenting a national identity, a national Christian identity. Um, but we do know that there were Christians there from very early on. Uh, we know in the year 200, the church father Tertullian mentions that there are Christians in England. Um, in the year 314, we know that there were British uh, bishops present at the Council of Arles, which was in France, um, which means that they would have been familiar with what we call an Episcopal church government. They knew enough to know that they needed bishops, um, and they sent those bishops to France for a meeting. So um, that's important. Um, 
the first well-known Christian in England, or if you can call him a Christian, uh, was about 306, uh, Pelagius, uh, who was a heretic. Um, so not off to a great start. <laughs> um, heresy, uh, the heresy of Pelagianism, and, and to be fair to Pelagius, we don't really know what he actually taught. When someone is condemned as a heretic throughout history, their work often gets destroyed or not preserved over time because they're uh, viewed as problematic. So we know about Pelagius because he opposed, well, actually he was opposed by St. Augustine of Hippo, um, who is obviously a very important Christian figure. Um, But from what we can tell through Augustine, Pelagius taught that Adam and Eve's sin does not really get passed on to us, that we don't inherit any sort of fallenness. They just set a bad example for us, and we often kind of follow that example. Um, but nothing's really inherently broken in, a, in the human being. That's sort of Pelagianism uh, 101. And so he argues, too, because nothing is really inherently wrong with the human being, that all of us of our own power can just sort of turn to God. We can pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. So uh, St. Augustine really didn't like this. He argued the exact opposite. From the moment of our birth, we're absolutely unable to choose God on our own. And so we are entirely reliant on his grace. Uh, Pelagius was deemed a heretic by the Western Church at the Second Council of Orange in the year 529. And they more or less sided with Augustine, though they did tone down some of Augustine. He got got very riled up about the Pelagianism stuff. So they had to moderate him a little bit. Everybody's favorite saint from this time period, though, is probably St. Patrick, who evangelized Ireland. Um, We associate him with the color green and beer, often colored green, um, which are both great things. But he is more interesting than that. Um, When he was 16, he had been captured by Irish pirates uh, from his home in Britain and was made a slave. Um, He he lived there, I think, for six years in in Ireland. Then he escaped and returned to his family, but he became a, a priest and then a bishop, and he returned to Ireland to evangelize the um to evangelize the area there. And of course, the greatest story about St. Patrick, my favorite part of it, you can see there, the snakes, uh, is that he drove the snakes out of Ireland. From what we can tell, there were never snakes in Ireland at all, but he, he drove them out just in case. Um, probably that story connects him to Moses, by the way. That's why they did that, because Moses, you know, there's the bronze serpent that gets lifted up. So, so during this time period... Uh, like I said, we don't really know very much about the church in England, except for a few figures here and there. But we can tell that it was relatively independent, partly because um, it didn't have origins directly in the Roman Catholic Church, as far as we can gather, and because it was geographically removed from the continent. So it kind of had its own things going on there. Um, sometimes, in modern Anglicanism, people really like this time period. Because they can say, hey, we're this sort of Catholic church that's totally unconnected from Roman Catholicism. And if only we can just go back and discover this really primitive church, we'll, we have this kind of alternative model for what it means to be Catholic Christians that's not Roman Catholicism. I'm not really a big fan of that historiography for a couple reasons. Um, the first is that it's it, it creates a very stark contrast between Roman Catholicism and everything else when Back in that time, there really wasn't such a distinction. Um, St. Patrick, for example, was educated in Rome. So the kind of Christianity he brought was a fairly Roman version of, of the faith. Now, it did develop its own quirks based on its, its geographical removal. So, for example, 
English churches celebrated Easter on a different day than the rest of the Western church. And that just happened because they didn't have access to some of the same materials that the church on the continent did. And so it just kind of became their thing. Hey, we're going to celebrate Easter on this day. Um, They also had married clergy, yay, um, and a few other local customs. But unfortunately, it did seem like Pelagius' teachings were more prevalent in the early English church, um, which is problematic. Um, And further, um, they had become marginalized throughout this period because of all of the pagan influences there, especially um, after the Saxon invasions that occurred after the Roman Empire had withdrawn from the region. So there was a lot of paganism and so the church really had, was on the fringe. So there is a story uh, that one day in Rome in about the 590s, uh, Pope Gregory I, who's also called Gregory the Great, was walking around the city and he walked by a slave auction. And on the block were these fair-haired men and boys from Britain. And so Gregory stopped and asked who they were. And one of the men replied that they were Angles to which Gregory made a pun that they were actually angels because of their fair hair. Um, And so because of this encounter, Gregory um, had a sort of heart for the people in England, and he sent a man named Augustine of Canterbury, different Augustine, um, to go on a mission trip to the Isles. So in 597, he and his team landed in Kent, England, where they met a guy named King Ethelbert, I like the names of the kings from that period. Um, And King Ethelbert had actually just married a Christian princess from France named Bertha, which is not the most attractive name. Um, And and he became one of St. Augustine's first converts to the faith. It helps to have friends in high places when you're on a missions trip like Augustine of Canterbury's. Um, So uh, the king really helped him um, establish uh, a beachhead missions-wise. So they built monasteries and churches more in the Roman style, uh, more uniform with what was going on in the continent. They introduced more Western customs to all of the English people there. As as they were more and more successful and began spreading, however, they bumped into that church that already existed that was doing things a little bit differently. And so then you have this kind of tension going on, right? These people have their own clergy, their own bishops. And if we know anything about bishops, it's that they don't usually like to give up power voluntarily. Um, they have their own will, way of building buildings. They have their own day for Easter, etc. Um, so you can imagine this, this creates some conflict between the two. Uh, so in 663, there was a gathering called the Synod of Whitby, which was called to resolve some of the tensions that had developed. And the winner of this synod was St. Augustine and the Roman church for a few reasons. Uh, the, the synod decided that Rome was the place where St. Peter and St. Paul had resided. Um, the Roman church had embodied universal practices of the church that could be found as far as Egypt. Um, and they respected St. Peter's authority as the one who received the keys from Christ. Um, so they decided to uh, bring the English church into communion with the Roman church and totally normalized all of those local customs um, that had sprung up. Now, things were relatively stable from that point on, because the ramification of Whitby is that the English church basically just became a localized expression of the Catholic church, which happens in Catholicism, right? You go to France, there's sort of a unique flavor of Catholicism in France that's a little different from Catholicism in Germany. Um, There are things that unite them, for sure, but they have their own local expressions. So England was just another expression. 
And things were pretty stable there uh, for quite some time, with a few exceptions, as, as most things. Um, but as time progressed, obviously the, the Roman church began to change a little bit. Um, and so while the pope had always been important in the church, he was becoming perceived as, he, he was being perceived as a sort of foreign dictator at the time. I mean, you have to remember, um, it's not like the papacy is today where he's just sort of a spiritual leader. He had his own armies. He had his own territories. He was taxing people in other countries. Um, and from the day that Augustine of Canterbury got off the boat, the English monarchs did have a large say in what was going on in the English church. They had a say usually in appointing bishops and setting certain policies in the church. So there's this kind of tension that begins to build between England and Rome, which reached a boiling point for a few reasons. The first was that um, there was a tax levied called Peter's Pence, which was initially voluntary, but it became a mandatory payment over time as a tax to sustain a house in Rome for English pilgrims. There was also a, a system called annates, which is a kind of tax, which was basically a pay-to-play system for bishops. You pay a certain amount of money, um, and you would receive a bull from the pope, um, and, uh, and, and you would get to go serve somewhere. And of course, the problem uh, for this was that uh, you basically, you would pay and then they would just give you an opening somewhere. So you could have like a, 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 a German bishop come to England. You all speak, you know, in old English and he doesn't speak a lick of it. And so he can't communicate with his people. Um, so there's that. And also obviously a system like that, uh, will sometimes, will attract people who are probably not the most qualified for ministerial work, um, because it's kind of power grab. So another thing was that, um, well, and actually this, this is related, the idea of provisions, that's, that's where they would bring in bishops from other places. Like, if, like when Bishop Grundorf retired, instead of electing Bishop Chad, we just got some guy from Italy who didn't know anything about the region and never even came to America. You know, um, um, He was just friends with our, the Pope, and, and the Pope owed him one, and so they gave him the... Mm -hmm. And then finally, there, there was the system of indulgences, which much has been made of that, you know, with Martin Luther and the Reformation um, indulgences. People were paying for their sins to be forgiven. Um, and the, really, the real travesty of this is that it's a kind of economic exploitation, you know. Um, as, the, as the market system for indulgences developed, uh, you also had marketing techniques, right? Purgatory uh, became something that it, it was not in the earlier church fathers. It became a lot more like hell. Hey, I can hear grandma screaming. You better, you know, give a hundred bucks now uh, so that we can give her a million years off, you know, something like that. Not quite the way that should work. So that's the background. That kind of sets the stage. And then we have Henry VIII coming into the picture. Um, and he's pictured there uh, in his younger years before he was quite as chubby. Um, and he's there with Thomas Cranmer, who was the first Archbishop of Canterbury and was responsible for a good deal of the Book of Common Prayer. Now, Henry was not the oldest child, so he was not supposed to be the king. His older brother, Arthur, was supposed to be the king. And Arthur married the Princess of Spain, whose name was Catherine of Aragon. But Arthur died when he was relatively young, and when Henry became the heir apparent for political purposes, he married his older brother's 
ex-wife Catherine, or widow Catherine. Um, now, the problem here is Leviticus 20.21. 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. She has uncovered, he, he has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So, um, when they got married, because of that verse, the Roman Catholic Church, through the Pope, gave a dispensation to Henry that said, it's okay, that verse doesn't apply to you right now. <laughs> Problem is, then, um, Catherine kept losing children over and over and over again. And if you listen to the verse, the penalty for marrying your brother's wife is childlessness. So if you place yourself in Henry's shoes for a moment, you've lost however many children. And there's this verse that tells you the penalty is childlessness. You might start to get some ideas about, you know, you're being punished by God and things like that. So, um, so Henry began to think Leviticus 20.21 really did apply to him, and he asked the Roman Catholic Church for an annulment, not a divorce. An annulment is different than a divorce. Um, Divorce is sort of impossible from a theological standpoint. But an annulment is to say there was an impediment that prevented the marriage from really being a marriage from the beginning. So, you know, if you found out, for example, Oedipus Rex, right? Oedipus is married to his mother. That is not a valid marriage. Um, so had they found that out later, they would have been able to get an annulment from the Catholic Church before he poked his eyes out. But he went the harder route, I guess. Now, and it should be said, too, there was also a precedent for annulments in these kinds of situations. Um, there were You can find many examples during the medieval, late medieval period of royals getting annulments for all sorts of reasons, um, some less legitimate than Henry's case. However, the church told Henry no to his request for an annulment, and this was for political reasons. Catherine's nephew was the, uh, had, had recently attacked the city of Rome and basically was holding the pope a political prisoner. And so the pope didn't feel like he could grant the annulment and do wrong to that family. So he said no. And this, of course, made Henry, who was a very even-tempered, uh, you know, reasonable man, uh, it made him very livid. And he decided that they were just going to leave the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, there are all these other precipitating factors going on, the indulgences, the provisions, the innates. Though it, it, it should be said, Henry was a very faithful Catholic up to this point. He had actually written a theological defense against Martin Luther that he was commended by the Pope for writing. The Pope gave him the title Defender of the Faith at one point. So it's very interesting um, that, that Henry decides that he needs to leave. Now, many scholars will say, and I think they're probably right to some degree, a reformation in England was probably inevitable anyways. Henry, in leaving the church, was able to maintain some control over what that reformation would look like. So it was actually somewhat of a, a, a wily move on his part, very shrewd move um, for him. But he kept control of the church. And during Henry's reign, it should be said, the Anglican church looked incredibly Roman Catholic. Transubstantiation was upheld as the official teaching of the church. Uh, the laity did not receive communion in both kinds. They received only the bread. Priests were not allowed to get married. Um, and they allowed private masses and auricular or private confession. However, Henry died in 1547 
and his son, Edward VI, came into power. And as Henry was dying, in order to maintain power uh, away from Rome, he did sort of side with more reformed uh, theologians and, and people. Um, and he put them in power. Edward, Edward was so young when he came into power that actually advisors were basically running the kingdom on his behalf. Um, and they really went pretty wild when it came to, uh, to installing a lot of Protestant reformed principles. Um, so under the church, under Henry, the church had been very uh, Catholic. Under Edward, they became very Protestant. Um, they banned vestments, pretty much the chasuble, like what we wear on Sundays at the Mass, was not allowed. Um, you weren't allowed to call it the Mass. Uh, you weren't allowed to elevate the host at any point during the service. Um, and a number of other uh, liturgical reforms were put into place. Uh, there were no altars. They took out all the altars and they put in tables. Um, and it was during Edward's reign that Thomas Cranmer really developed what we now call the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the first edition was produced in 1549. The 1549 prayer book is still a bit Catholic. It calls the, the principal Holy Eucharist service the Mass um, and a few other uh, more Catholic-leaning things in it. But the, then there was revised in 1552, and it really looked a lot different in 1552. Um, but Edward was a hemophiliac and died when he was a teenager. So it sort of stopped the reform in its tracks. And um, he was succeeded by Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. Um, she was the only surviving child of Henry and Catherine, the first marriage that had, he had attempted to get annulled. And because of her mother, she was Roman Catholic. So she temporarily got the Church of England back together with Rome she executed Thomas Cranmer and a number of the English reformers that had been in power under the reign of Edward, um, which is why they call her Bloody Mary. Um, and Rome sent a legate named Cardinal Reginald Pole to England. And while he was there, he absolved England of all ecclesiastical sins that had been committed under Edward and Henry. Um, and he uh, and he did a lot to get the church back. He, uh, it should be said, did not reordain any clergy that had been ordained under Henry and Edward, which is key because Romans, Roman Catholics say Anglican orders are invalid because of what happened during the reign of Edward. But at the time, they did not reordain any Anglican priests. So there are reasons for that. Uh, it's a whole other conversation. Um, so the story really could have ended there. We could all just be, you know, run-of-the-mill uh, English-style uh, Roman Catholics, except that um, right as the merger was, was going into place, uh, Mary died and Reginald Pole died within 24 hours of her. Hmm. And so uh, Henry's other daughter, Elizabeth came to the throne, and Elizabeth was a Protestant, um, and so she decided that the Church of England would be Protestant. However, she wasn't as radical as Edward. So Edward was probably more influenced by the sort of Calvinistic uh, Genevan Reformation. I would argue Elizabeth was more influenced by the Lutheran Reformation, and if you know the difference, the Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran Church is more, I would say, more Catholic than the Reformed Church. So in the Lutheran Church, you might find icons. You know, they they basically keep the form of the Mass. Um, 
whereas in in reformed churches they don't really like images at all um very very stripped down worship very severe worship austere worship um so so elizabeth is sort of a moderate protestant whereas edward had been a little bit more of a radical protestant in some ways and she also understood that because of the tumultuous nature of the period that she had to be somewhat diplomatic. So rather than cracking down on Catholics um, or other Protestants she didn't agree with, she actually did allow for a good degree of what we would call now religious freedom or tolerance. Um, She allowed Catholics to practice, which was a big deal. Um, And she retained a good deal of Catholicity in the church under her period, um, which is a good thing. She brought back the 1552 prayer book, but it was modified to fit the sort of broader she realized they were going to have to make some compromises in order to keep things together. And so she was willing. The, the, the prayer book and the 39 article, articles are written to be a little bit vague on some things just so that it, could, it can have multiple views under its um, – it's a compromise document is the way that my priest friend says it. Now, as an aside, I should say too, the Book of Common Prayer that we use here was the one that was produced in 1928 for Americans – Um, And it is based primarily on the later Book of Common Prayer, which came out in 1662, though it does make some adjustments. Um, The main difference in the 28 is like tonight at at evening prayer, um, had we prayed for a political leader, we would have prayed for the president, uh, not the queen. In 1662, you pray for the queen. Um, Also, the 1928 added prayers for the dead. Um, So in the prayer for the whole state of Christ Church, we, uh, we pray for the departed. That would not be in the 1662 prayer book. So in a, a sort of, um, if, you, if you look at the time period in which the 28 was produced, 1928, this is after the Oxford movement and the more Anglo-Catholic movements. So there's a little bit of influence from that in it. So a lot goes on between 1603 and 1833, but effectively the church was fairly stable um, in its kind of broad Protestant, you know, um, identity. There were attempts to overhaul this. The Puritans, for example, were a very radical reformed group that tried, like Thomas Cromwell, for example, tried to totally um, remove the episcopate um, from from the Church of England. Um, But throughout that whole period, uh, it kept the threefold structure of of deacon, priest, and bishop. Um, Charles I uh, died as a martyr uh, defending the episcopacy from Cromwell. Um, in fact, this church used to be called Charles King and Martyr back in the day, um, and there's a society of King Charles uh, King and Martyr, um, which I'm a member of, and I say a mass every year on his uh, on his on the date of his martyrdom. But uh, in the 1800s, you you have a sort of identity crisis. Um, modernity had begun to sneak in to. Uh, the mainstream consciousness, uh, the Enlightenment had occurred in the 1700s. So you had a kind of wide range of, of things infiltrating the church coming out of the Enlightenment, you know, a kind of scientism, deism, all those kind of things were very popular at the time. So you had a kind of um, what we might call liberalizing influence in the church. And you also had these kind of evangelical and reformed parties that would sort of butt heads over certain issues. Um, and, and part of what was going on is a secularizing of the English government, which had been very wedded to the church at one point. Um, 
And so you have this secularizing government that begins telling the church how it should be structured. One particularly problematic event was when they tried to change the number of episcopates in Ireland as a way of maximizing tax revenue. Um, And so this caused a number of red flags, especially for more traditionally minded Anglicans. So John Keeble, uh, not one of the elves, um, he was a poet and a priest and a professor at Oxford, preached a sermon on July 14th, 1833 called National Apostasy. And he called his fellow clergymen in the Church of England to return to a more traditional and Catholic way of faith. He, he emphasized that the church has a kind of autonomy by nature of being the church, that it transcends whatever the state says. So the state should not be telling you who can be a bishop, who can't be a bishop, or even where there should be bishops. That's a decision that the church should make. And to ground his, um, to ground his argument, he, he, he uses the Episcopal structure of the Church of England and the fact that it has apostolic succession to say we need to go backwards and think about how the church has organized itself throughout history and be more in that vein. And of course, um, Catholic is one of those words that can scare some people. What do we talk about when we talk about Catholic? Um, To be properly Catholic is to believe that which has been believed everywhere for all time and by all Christians. That's called the Vincentian Canon by St. Vincent. Um, It is to hold to the common faith that was passed down to us, the faith once... Uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude verse 3 says. So sometimes the word is scary, um, but it's okay um, to say that what we do is Catholic, um, and we'll explore what that looks like in coming weeks. What does it look like to be uh, Catholic? For the sake of, of avoiding confusion, when we're talking about specifically Roman Catholicism, we can just call it Roman Catholicism. Um, and they are certainly Catholic in many ways, too. Um, and, and there's a lot of overlap with what we do and what, with what they do. So John Keeble preaches this sermon in 1833, and it really catches fire. It inspires a number of other Oxford men to begin exploring the Catholic faith, and it takes off as a movement. So um, perhaps the most well-known figure in the movement is a man named John Henry Newman. Um, and another supporting cast member is uh, Edward Bouvier Pusey. Uh, These are sort of the two main figureheads of the movement, Um, and they both argued for English Christians who wanted a more sacramental and more Catholic faith. Their main uh, uh, literary output, they both produced their own books and works, but their main literary output was over the course of of seven or eight years, they wrote a series called Tracks for the Times, which are explorations and extrapolations on different facets of the Catholic faith. They're fascinating. Um, I I really enjoy reading them. Um, John Henry Newman wrote the last track, track 90, which is kind of infamous. He wrote this in 1841, and what he does is he takes the 39 articles of religion, which can be found at the back of every prayer book, and he tries to interpret them through the lens of the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic Council that was called to condemn all the Protestant heresies. So he's saying there's not really a difference between us and you, and because of that, we can come together. Of course, Rome didn't really like this, and neither did a lot of other Anglicans. Um, so, um, for example, for example, what he does, if you, if you pull up the 39 articles, there's one that, that 
condemns the invocation of the saints. Okay, so you're not supposed to ask saints to pray for you in the 39 articles. And he says, if you read the text of the article, it says we it says that the Romish doctrine of invocation of the saints is wrong. So he's not saying, so the articles don't say all invocation of the saints is wrong, just the bad kind of invocation that was unique to Roman Catholicism. So maybe instead of asking St. Christopher to find the keys for you, you can just ask St. Christopher to pray for you, you know, something like that. Um, so he creates that distinction, and it's not to, altogether an unfounded distinction, um, but that kind of threading the needle made a lot of people uncomfortable and they really didn't like uh, what he did. So they kind of pushed him out uh, of his positions and he, he basically became a hermit for a few years. Um, and uh, he ended up, he ended up, um, I think a few years later, uh, let's see, 1845, he ended up becoming Roman Catholic and was actually made a cardinal in his lifetime. And uh, October 13, 2019, he was uh, made a saint by Pope Francis. Um, so when, uh, when John Henry Newman left the Church of England, Edward Pusey sort of took uh, the role as the figurehead of the movement, but he wasn't nearly as charismatic as uh, Newman was. He was sort of a more scholarly man. Not that Newman wasn't scholarly, but he was a bookish man um, and a very severe man too. Um, and so, um, so he didn't quite do for the movement what Newman had done. There is a coffee shop at Oxford still, though, and if you order to go, you order a Newman, and if you order to stay in, you order a Pusey. Um, so, <laughs> the Oxford movement, uh, as far as the way that they looked liturgically and, and in a lot of their devotional practices, they still looked like most of the Church of England. So they didn't really wear chasubles or, or what were then called Romish vestments. You know, they, they look like reformed Anglicans they would wear, um, kind of like what we wear at morning prayer, like what I was wearing all, uh, earlier, an academic hood, um, a surplus and a tippet, you know. Um, after the Oxford movement sort of fizzled out, though, there were other movements that took off that were related. So sort of like how uh, the pilgrims and the founding fathers are not exactly the same thing, but you can't really have the founding fathers without the pilgrims. So there are other movements that come later, the ritualists, who really emphasized Eucharistic presence and baptismal regeneration. Um, and then you had the Anglo-Catholic Congresses, which really emphasized liturgical reform. So they brought back certain vestments, um, certain ceremonies, the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, for example. Um, incense was a big deal in the 1890s. You know, uh, and there were priests that went to prison for doing things like this in England. Um, Arthur Tooth went to prison for for a while because he had worn a chasuble. Um, so there was, there was this kind of antagonism to this movement, but the movement was really successful. Um, two funny stories about, uh, about resistance to the movement. I have been reading a book about, um, about the Anglo-Catholic movement, and, um, and the writer tells this story about his dad was attending Mass at this church, and it was a very Anglo-Catholic church. And so they would lift the host during the Mass, you know, like we do today, you know. And, uh, and I guess a, a low Reformed Protestant Anglican had snuck into the church, and some of the church wardens recognized him as a as a sort of Protestant troublemaker, and so they all went to go sit around him, like they sat you know on his sides and in front and behind him, and he was going to stand up during the elevation of the host and blaspheme the sacrament, and so the person behind him put his hand over his mouth, and the other guys on the side like put their hands on his you know pinioned his arms, and then they moved the chairs and they they 
took him out and dropped him outside. <laughs> um, and the other, the other was that uh, there was a priest named Montague Knoll, um, who was a member of the Society of the Holy Cross, which is an Anglo-Catholic fraternity. And he was, they had a high feast day, and he was doing a children's mass, and he was doing a, a, a sort of catechism for the kids, and he's asking them questions. And he says, children, you know how you're not supposed to look around during church? Children say, yes, Father. He said, well, I'm going to let you, because it's a special day, I'm going to let you turn around and look behind you. What do you see? So they all turn around, they look, and they say, there are three men back there. And he says, well, what are they doing? And they say, they're writing in little notebooks. And he goes, what do you think they're writing? He says, I don't know, Father. What, is he, what are they writing? He says, well, they're writing things about what we're doing here to try and get your poor old vicar sent to prison. Isn't that wicked, children? And the children say, yeah, that is wicked, Father. And he says, what should we do about these wicked men in the church? There's silence. The kids don't know what to do. He says, we will kneel down and we will all say a Hail Mary for these three very wicked men. <laughs> and, then, and then when the, they turned around, the men had, were not there anymore. So the Oxford Movement and, and the subsequent successors really helped change the Church of England. And, and if you haven't figured out my uh, bias here, for the better, in my opinion, um, and, and this is true on a few levels, uh, it helped remind Anglicans that, that we are part of the ancient, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, what we confess when we say the creeds. It helped remind Anglicans that we are a sacramental tradition, that at the heart of our worship is the Mass. And, the, and, um, and it took some time to develop here, but the liturgy is not an accident. And so the older liturgical forms that were, uh, that were inculcated during the more reformed era of Anglicanism are not really adequate to express the higher sacramental theology that developed through the Oxford movement. So you get what, what's basically now called high church Anglicanism, um, though there are some differences. But, but the idea of uh, wearing chasubles, of, of elevating the host, of using incense, you know, and having a very nice liturgy uh, is important because it's not just a style thing. It's not just an aesthetic thing. It is a theological thing first and foremost. We do the things we do because the liturgy is our theology in action. Um, and interestingly, one of the other uh, consequences of the Oxford movement and, and, its, and the Anglo-Catholic movement was that it helped spread the gospel to the poor in England. Um, these Anglo-Catholic priests were often called slum priests. They would live in the poorest neighborhoods and work with working class people and, um, and just the poorest of the poor who had been totally dismissed by the sort of um, upper crust evangelical parties. Um, the, the evangelicals were more aristocratic and elitist at the time. Um, my, my theory is that the reason they were so successful with the poor is that the sort of sacramental tradition is a very tangible way of expressing your faith. Christ is in the bread. He's in the wine. You know, you don't have to, we're not explaining it away. We're not saying he's spiritually present. We're not, you know, doing all these kind of jujitsu moves to get out of it. We're saying he's actually here. Um, and so it's something you can touch. It's something you can smell. It's something you can taste. Um, Reformed theology and evangelical theology can be kind of abstract on these points. Um, but I always love that about the, about the Anglo-Catholics in the 20th century, that they were the most successful in the poorest of neighborhoods, which is interesting because if you think about it, uh, Anglo-Catholic worship is very extravagant. You know, you have these really beautiful uh, churches and really, uh, really expensive vestments and things, but, um, but even in those poor communities, there's something transcendent about that, I think, that people, people wanted. So the last period of Anglicanism 
for us to talk about is Anglicanism in America. Um, because obviously it makes sense that as a British colony, Anglicanism would be your sort of default religion. And that was true of a lot of American colonies, right? Um, it's true of Virginia, for example, um, and it was true of Maryland. Um, even though Lord Baltimore himself was Catholic um, and Catholicism was certainly prevalent, it, it was never a Roman Catholic colony, as far as I can tell, in the way that it was uh, an Anglican colony. Though it was, it did have more tolerance, I think, than a lot of other. Maybe Pennsylvania had a, had more because they were weirder. They were Quakers, <laughs> but. Um, but yes, uh, in fact, my my mother-in-law's family was Baptist, like from way back, and they got kicked out of Maryland at one point because they didn't want to get married in the Anglican Church, um, so they moved to North Carolina. Um, two problems developed uh, in American Anglicanism pretty early on. The first is that this is where they sent the undesirable priests from England. You know, oh, you can't be successful here, so let's send you over uh, to the New World. And then, of course, we have the Revolutionary War, which poses a big problem because at an English ordination, you are forced to swear allegiance to the monarch. So you have kind of a tough spot because you can't just go to the colonies and serve at a church anymore if you're an English royalist. Um, so Anglicanism really actually dwindled in a lot of places during um, during and right after the Revolution in Virginia, which had been a strongly Anglican colony at one point. Dipped down to below like five priests at one point. So an American named Samuel Seabury, who is in uh, the musical Hamilton uh, for a few minutes, he's the one who tries to argue against uh, violent revolution. Um, he actually got elected a bishop by his fellow clergy in the United States. They sent him to England to be consecrated a bishop, but they ran into this problem of not being able to pledge allegiance to the British monarch. So he hopped over to Scotland and they consecrated him there in Scotland. Um, and they actually, uh, as, a, as a result of this, um, they uh, required the Americans to insert some things from the Scottish Book of Common Prayer. So the 1928 Book of Common Prayer looks a lot like the 1662, but it does incorporate certain aspects of the Scottish Book of Common Prayer as well. Um, and funny enough, this made the English nervous because they didn't want other natural national churches consecrating American bishops. So they began to relax the provision about uh, about pledging allegiance to the king kind of after this. But um, but it was sort of too late. The floodgates had already opened. Um, so with Seabury, we really get what we call the Episcopal Church. Um, and, and we call it that to avoid confusion with the actual Church of England, um, even though now the two have been in communion with each other for a long time. And, and it should be noted, in America, we have this weird tendency where we call Episcopalians or Episcopal, those are things that are still connected with the Episcopal Church in the United States, whereas Anglican has come to mean something um, like maybe a little more conservative, um, those groups that have left the Episcopal Church for various reasons. And that's actually a good segue into the fact that in the 20th century, it, it's sort of a tragic story because in the 20th century, Anglicanism was one of the biggest drivers for ecumenical progress. Um, Anglicans did a lot of work in the early 20th century with the Eastern Orthodox Church to the point that they were very close to potentially being in intercommunion with one another. And they even made a lot of inroads with Roman Catholicism. In the 1960s, the Pope visited uh, Archbishop Michael Ramsey, 
who was a great Archbishop of Canterbury, taught at Neshota House, which is where I go to school when he retired, um, and gave the Archbishop a paten and a chalice and an Episcopal ring, which is certainly making a bold statement, uh, you know, to, to, to a church like the Anglican Church. Um, funny story about Michael Ramsey. You know, he was this eccentric British man, and he goes to Wisconsin to teach at Neshota House, and uh, across the lake at Neshota is a mental institution. And so this is like in the 80s. So Michael Ramsey would take these walks and he got turned around and he ends up on the other side of the lake. And one of the aides at the mental institution finds him and is like, who are you? What are you doing? And he goes, I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to need to hold on to you. <laughs> but then th- then they uh, they sent a, a worker from Neshota. He said, no, he really... <laughs> So, so the Anglican Church had made a lot of progress throughout the 20th century, and then uh, it began uh, tolerating and even promulgating certain innovations of the faith that made it very difficult. So, for example, um, with or- the Orthodox, uh, they were very close to intercommunion, and then all of a sudden the USSR comes onto the, onto the scene, and so the Eastern churches became very ins- insular as a result of that. When, they, when the USSR falls... And the Orthodox are able to talk with people again and resume ecumenical relations. Uh, women's ordination was already occurring in England and the United States. And for the Orthodox, that's really a no, no compromise issue. So they weren't able to do anything with that. Um, so you have this shift in the 60s and 70s, and it's not just one or two particular issues. You have, um, you have figures like Albert Pike, who was a bishop who you know, denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. Um, you have John Shelby Spong, who totally rejects pretty much anything in the Bible, <laughs> um, which is you know hard to uh, hard to hard to uh, keep all the balls in the air there uh, as a bishop. Um, and so, and it was in the seventies that the Episcopal Church began ordaining women, and this happened in a way that was not above board. Really, um, it was one bishop who just decided to do it. Yep. So all of a sudden, you have. If you're going to do that, you need to have agreement from the church to do it. Um, And there was no such consensus. The bishop just started doing it. And all of a sudden, it was just kind of nobody stepped in to say, you can't do that. Nobody stepped in to say, can we stop and talk about this? It just started happening. And and once you open those doors, it's very hard to go back. Um, And also uh, in the 70s, you had the Episcopal Church creating a new prayer book. What's now called the 1979 prayer book was in development. Um, and the 1979 gets a lot of flack, but it's not a bad prayer book, um, in my opinion. Uh, it, you could do worse. It's got some weird, wacky parts. You know, Eucharistic Prayer C is this prayer that we call the Star Wars prayer. It begins, uh, <laughs> God of interstellar space and galaxies. This fragile earth, our this fragile earth, our island home. From the primordial ooze, you called man. You know these kind of terms. It's very 1970s. Um, but it, there are parts of the prayer book that are, are good, and you don't have to do Eucharistic prayer. See, they never do it at Neshota House. Um, but the idea of they're creating a new prayer book and they're doing this thing with women's ordination was disconcerting. So a bunch of Catholic-minded Anglicans in 1977. Um, met at in St. Louis at what was now called the Congress of St. Louis and decided that it was time to leave the Episcopal Church. And so they set up a an Orthodox Anglican Church in the United States. This movement is called Continuing Anglicanism, um, or the Continuum. And 
what should have been a unified movement ended up fracturing because of personalities and politics. You have four main churches that were created out of that. The Anglican Catholic Church, the Anglican Province of America, the APA, what we are here at St. Paul's, uh, the Anglican Church of America, the ACA, which is what uh, Father Dennis is in Colorado now, um, and the Diocese of the Holy Cross are sort of the four main movers in that world. Um, and like I said, there was a lot of infighting and politicking at the beginning that prevented there from, from being really a one functional movement. Um, but in 2017, those four churches got together in Atlanta and signed statements of full intercommunion um, with each other. And over the coming years, we'll see more unification. So the, uh, the continuum is founded in the 70s. Um, and then in 2003, um, something even more controversial happened, which is that V. Jean Robinson was consecrated a bishop in the Episcopal Church. Um, and, uh, and Robinson is the first openly gay non-celibate bishop to be consecrated in the Episcopal Church. So this caused a lot of controversy. Um, because even though there were a bunch of Anglicans that left in the 70s, you still had people in the Episcopal Church who would identify as a little more conservative. Um, and so they were able to just sort of tolerate what was going on. And, and then this happened. And it was really, I, I would say it's not just this issue. It was the, this issue was the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people. And so they left the Episcopal Church then. And in 2009, you have a group called the Anglican Church in North America that was founded. Um, the Anglican Church in North America is probably, well, it's definitely bigger than the, um, than the, uh, than the continuum. Um, but the sad part about that split was that, and it didn't really happen as much in the 70s, but it did happen a lot in the 2000s, that the Episcopal Church would sue um, parishes that left for the building and the land. Um, there are still lawsuits that are pending um, Diocese of Fort Worth just won their lawsuit. They left the Episcopal Church and they won like just now. And they, but they've been tied up for almost a decade at this point. Um, and that was true of Diocese of Quincy and a few other places. And just parishes that left were totally hammered. And, and you also had priests who lost their retirement pensions because of that, which is really sad because the Episcopal Church has a great pension plan. Um, so that's not good. Um, I was actually a part of the ACNA before I came here to the uh, to St. Paul's and joined the APA. Um, but the ACNA has its own drawbacks in that there's really not a lot of unification there in the ACNA. They're sort of they're sort of a confederation of bishops um, who all agree that they don't like the Episcopal Church, but that's about all they agree on. Um, so uh, so for example, um, in the ACNA, some bishops will ordain women to the priesthood. Um, some bishops will ordain women as deacons. Some bishops won't do anything with uh, women ordain, ordaining women clergy, um, but in none of them are women allowed to be bishops. So you have this kind of interesting. To me, it's actually the most sexist of the positions because you're saying like, oh, you can do you can do one or two of the things, but not all three. It's I don't know. It's not great, um, and it, it will be interesting to see what happens there. Um, they have created their own prayer book, the 2019 prayer book, which is pretty good. Um, but there are a lot of politics at play there. And as the APA, we're not in full communion with the ACNA, um, but we do recognize the orders of certain dioceses. Um, the diocese I came from, they recognize our orders. Um, and we try and build relationships with ACNA churches when possible. Um, so there's one in Gambrel, St. Andrews. Uh, Matt went there once, I think. Um, and there's also right down the street at the Seventh-day Adventist Church across from Brightview. Uh, they, they have one that meets there called Redeemer. Uh, my friend Ian, who has served here a couple times, um, was the pastoral assistant there. So 
when we talk about the modern landscape of Anglicanism, um, my friend Canon Robert Bader of the Diocese of the Holy Cross um, basically says there are three kinds of Anglicanism today. There's Canterbury Anglicanism, there's what's called Gafcon Anglicanism, and there's Continuing Anglicanism. So Canterbury Anglicanism uh, would refer to the Church of England as it exists today. It refers to the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church of Canada. Um, and in these circles, uh, you have women's ordination, you have same-sex marriage. Um, and Father Bader says that the, these churches tend to be more open to revisionism on any issue of faith and morals. Um, so you have a wide range. I mean, I have a friends in the Episcopal Church who deny the resurrection, um, but I have other friends in the Episcopal Church who are incredibly orthodox and, you know, are, are people who I would love to have come preach at, a, at our church, you know. So you just don't know what you're going to get. Uh, Gafcon Anglicanism, which uh, is the Anglican Church in North America, but also um, the Global Anglican Future Conference, which includes, like, Africa, South America, um, that began in 2008, the GAFCON group. Um, and in these circles, they generally oppose same-sex marriage. Um, but like I said, that's about all they agree on. Um, they, they, uh, some oppose ordination of women, some accept it. Uh, the fastest and largest, the fastest growing and largest diocese accept it. Um, so it will be their sort of default position, I think. Um, they also are very evangelical and um, lean very reformed, so they often uh, invoke the 39 Articles as authoritative. I think their, I think their Constitution and Canons says the 39 Articles are um, authoritative, whereas in the Continuum, the 39 Articles are not authoritative. Um, so continuing Anglicanism tends to be the sort of more Anglo-Catholic movement. It's the one that stands more in line with the Anglo-Catholic Congresses and the Oxford movement, uh, that trajectory. Um, as Father Bader says, it's a Catholicism which is neither Roman nor Byzantine, which is non-papal, but at the same time specifically Western in its outlook and temper. So, um, like I said, Anglicanism, it's sort of a sad story, you know, from the 70s onward, because it was such a driver of progress um, in the Western church, uh, particularly in the 20th century. Um, so it's maybe for this reason that it's in a spiritual mess because it was uh, sort of attacked, you know, in, in a spiritual way. Um, but Anglicanism isn't the only church that has uh, suffered pressure from modernity. Uh, the Lutheran church has certainly undergone similar um, tensions. You have the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and you have the L Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, uh, similar battle lines there. Um, you have the same thing in Presbyterianism, the PCUSA and the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA. Um, and even parts of Roman Catholicism have similar tensions. I mean, they're still under one pope, but you have people like, uh, you have people like Ross Douthat, who's a conservative columnist for the New York Times, and you've got people like James Martin, um, who's a Jesuit, who's sort of pro-LGBT, um, under one church, but they're, they're, they couldn't be more different from each other, you know. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting place to be, the church as a whole. Um, but I think, what does Anglicanism look like moving forward if it's going to be successful, if it's going to survive? That's the question that we've sort of been asking ourselves for the past couple decades now. Um, personally, I think that it begins with godly bishops, um, you have to have godly bishops who are willing to step in and say you can't do that to other bishops um, because that's how the whole system has to work. Uh, bishops are accountable to other bishops. And what you had in the Episcopal Church as it was breaking down was too much uh, hands-off in this regard. 
I'm okay if you're okay. We'll just do our thing over here and you do your thing over there. Um, and so you end up having very different churches in very different dioceses. Um, the other thing it needs is, is a Catholic theology and a Catholic imagination and a high liturgy that reflects that theology. Um, and so, you know, we use our older language here at St. Paul's, which sounds more antiquated than the language that you would hear at a lot of Episcopal or ACNA churches. And there's something to be said. I, it's not to say that that's bad, but why do we use the language that we use? Well, I think it does create a sense of reverence, a sense that we're elevating, you know, we're, we're elevating our attention upwards. We're, we're addressing God differently than how we speak to each other at a coffee shop, you know. Um, not that there's anything wrong with speaking to each other at a coffee shop, but that there's a kind of reverence there. Um, we're recovering that kind of worship. The, the 1928 prayer book is a beautiful resource. And a lot of our churches use the Anglican Missal. We use it here at St. Paul's in some ways, and in some of the additions that we have to the Mass, the Centurion's Prayer, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof. That's from the Missal. The Agnus Dei, um, Lamb of God who takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. That's from the Missal. The Missal is a, is a supplement to the 1928 Book of Common Prayer that adds more Catholic elements to the liturgy. It has more feast days, Catholic feast days. Um, in it. And uh, so, so these things are good tools for us to have. So personally, this is why I'm in the Anglican province of America. Um, having been in the ACNA um, and having friends in the Episcopal Church who I respect and like very much, I don't know what those churches are going to look like in 20 years. I just don't. Um, I pray for them. I cheer for the Orthodox friends of mine and, um, and the Catholics in those groups. And we cooperate with them whenever possible. Um, I preached at the Good Friday service at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Pasadena, and I'm good friends with their rector, you know. So we have relationships across party lines, but, um, but I think it's really exciting where the APA is right now. And you may have heard a little bit of that come out when, in um, Kathy and uh, Cynthia's report about the synod that we, we had recently where Bishop Chad was enthroned. Um, and just seeing the growth that's occurring in the APA, it's a very exciting time. We have those godly bishops, we have Catholic theology, we have Catholic liturgy, and we have a lot of youthful energy, especially with Bishop Chad coming in, too. Um, so, really, we should pray for Christ's church, because we all need it, whether we're Lutheran, Anglican, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, uh, Presbyterian. Um, so, uh, I think that would be a fitting place to end, in fact, is to pray for the, for the church. Uh, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we humbly beseech thee for thy holy Catholic Church, that thou wouldest be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of him who died and rose again, and ever liveth to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen.